From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, September 27th. I'm Aaron Schachter. Where should a red line be drawn? A red line should be drawn right here. Israel's prime minister draws a clear red line, literally, on Iran's nuclear program. We'll hear the details. And later, we remember the man who played Inspector Clouseau's exasperated boss in the Pink Panther movies. See, it's always the same. Clouseau is sitting there, and then suddenly my hands go round his throat. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals make their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu took his case against Iran to the United Nations General Assembly today, and he got creative with it. Netanyahu's main point was that a clear red line must be drawn beyond which Iran's nuclear program would not be allowed to progress. With one hand, he held up a sign with a drawing of a cartoon-like bomb, complete with fuse, and divided according to the various stages of uranium enrichment. And in his other hand, he had a red marker. Where should a red line be drawn? A red line should be drawn right here. Before... Before Iran completes the second stage of nuclear enrichment necessary to make a bomb. Netanyahu also said diplomacy and sanctions have failed to deter Iran so far. That statement was undermined by an Israeli government report that was leaked to a newspaper ahead of the prime minister's speech. Reporter Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem says the document from the Israeli foreign ministry suggests sanctions are effective. It said it gathered data from countries with embassies in Tehran, and that data shows that sanctions are crippling the Iranian economy more than ever before. Um, The report found that Iran's oil exports declined by over 50 percent in the last year. Oil revenues plummeted by $40 billion since the beginning of the year. Prices of all basic commodities have shot up, things like bread and meat and electricity, Furthermore, the foreign ministry official that spoke to the newspaper anonymously said that Israel believes that average Iranians are actually blaming the Iranian leadership for this situation, not the West. Netanyahu hasn't spoken out publicly about this report in uh, Haaretz today. But wouldn't Netanyahu say that while the sanctions may have some effect on the population, they're not putting enough stress on the government to force it to curtail its nuclear program? That's exactly what Netanyahu has been saying repeatedly this month. Um, He even said it in his speech at the UN. He seems to be saying that the time of diplomacy and sanctions has come and gone, and the nuclear centrifuges are still spinning. 
So it's time to consider other options. Now, um, as you said, this report was leaked from the uh, foreign ministry ahead of the big speech today at the U.N. by Netanyahu. Even if it suggests that sanctions aren't going as far as Netanyahu would like, politically, this does seem to suggest some dissent within the Netanyahu government. Well, yeah, it's no secret that there are multiple voices in the Israeli government with differing views on how to deal with Iran. For many, many months, Netanyahu and his defense minister have advocated a military strike, and other Israeli officials have expressed concern about a strike. Now, the foreign minister's position on an Iran strike really hasn't been so clear, but it would seem that this leaked report from his office could signal that he or the foreign ministry are trying to advocate another way to stress that, you know, perhaps diplomacy and sanctions can still run their course. And, you know, that's a different stress than the stress that Netanyahu is giving, which is it's time to consider the red line at which we should start thinking about attacking Iran militarily. Now, Netanyahu at the United Nations today during his speech held up a um, what I can only describe as slightly comical graphic showing where Iran is in the uh, process of building a bomb. It looked sort of like an old-fashioned bomb that we see on cartoons, and it says Iran is almost there. Now, he Netanyahu has been repeating for 20 years, uh, more or less, that uh, Iran was close to obtaining nuclear capability. Are there critics in Israel who are saying that uh, essentially the Israeli premier is crying wolf? There are. There are many critics here who are saying that. All the public talk and debate has many wondering here, what are Netanyahu's real intention? It is clear that Israel would prefer the United States lead on an attack on Iran. And Netanyahu's rhetoric in recent months and weeks seems to be getting the U.S. to inch toward a a sort of ultimatum on what would trigger an American military attack on Iran. So all this uh, rhetoric about red lines and uh, sanctions, diplomacy, There are many critics in Israel saying, wait a minute, does Netanyahu seriously intend to bomb Iran on his own? It appears that this is trying to get uh, the American administration and and the world gathering around some kind of consensus on uh, what are the red lines. Reporter Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem, thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. It's hard to figure out just how all the talk of red lines and possible military strikes is viewed inside Iran. To try to get a grip on that, we turn to Karim Sajadpour of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and Nazila Fati, who reported for the New York Times from Iran until she was forced out in 2009. She's now a fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center. Fati says while many Iranians are worried about the possibility of military confrontation, they have other more immediate concerns, too. The sanctions are, are really biting now. People are waking up every morning feeling that the value of of their currency is just plunging. And then on the radio and newspapers, there are reports that there might be a military strike. And we're talking about a country that went through an eight years of war just two decades ago. A lot of people fought in the war. And a lot of people lost their fathers, lost their siblings in that war. So war is not something that is alien to Iranians. They fear it. They dread it. But they're also grappling with other uh, immediate problems, economic problems, that they have to, they have to bring bread on the table every day. Karim, who, who do you think people blame for this? Iran is a population of over 75 million people, so it's very difficult to generalize. But I've often found that when people's 
uh, economic prospects deteriorate as a result of sanctions, it tends to accentuate their existing political views, meaning if you're a supporter of the government and your life has been made more difficult by sanctions, you have just one more reason to dislike the United States and blame it for Iran's economic travails. If you're an opponent of the government, I think you, you have another reason to dislike the government for their mismanagement. Something that, that caught our eye this week was um, just as uh, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad began his speech at the UN, Iranian authorities reportedly detained one of his, his top aides. And there have been um, quite a few of Ahmadinejad's allies who've been detained recently. What does that say to you, Nazila? This is a sign that the Iranian leadership, the Iranian establishment, wants to bring Ahmadinejad's era to an end, whether he wants it or he doesn't want it. Well, by no, era, I mean, you mean I mean his presidency is up, correct? He is. It's up. It's going to be over in spring 2013. But he has suggested and hinted that he's not going to leave politics. And so there have been assumptions that maybe one of his close allies uh, would run for president and he would follow some kind of a Putin policy and wait for the next term to run again. The arrest, the detention uh, this week, it was not a new thing. It started in 2011, and over a dozen of his allies have been arrested so far. It's a way of putting pressure on him at the same time when he was giving his historical speech at the UN. Whether he's going to bow to the demand of the establishment and and leave politics? We don't know. Uh, That's something that we have to wait and see. He has threatened several times that if push comes to shove, he's going to reveal state secrets to stay in power. But I think the biggest question now is who is the one uh, that the the establishment wants to replace Ahmadinejad with? Who's going to succeed him? And what direction the country is planning to move? Because I think you can only compare Iran's situation now uh, with its with the situation in 1988 towards the end of the war. Iran has never been so isolated economically in a bad shape and internally fractured as it is today. Would you say it's it's ripe for change? It is time for the leadership to make a decision and ch- make changes. Karim, any, any idea whether that change is one way or the other, more open, less open? Certainly the Iranian supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, has garnered more and more power over the last decade, working in conjunction with the Revolutionary Guards. And, you know, I think this is something which is commonly misunderstood among uh, outsiders. Uh, Ahmadinejad is kind of the public face of Iran. He is the guy who who enjoys traveling abroad, who enjoys coming to the United Nations. But the main power, Ayatollah Khamenei, hasn't left the country since 1989, but he's just been garnering more and more authority. So that certainly the trend lines are in the direction of a more dictatorial system. That said, I think there is tremendous popular disaffection. And we saw obviously what's transpired in the Arab world over the last two years with these unexpected uprisings. I, I don't necessarily envision that same outcome in Iran. That said, you know, I always go back to this old adage from Trotsky, who was talking about dictatorships, and he said that while they rule, their collapse appears inconceivable, and after they've fallen, their collapse appeared inevitable. I I guess I I still don't understand from an Iranian perspective, from the people in the country, and I understand there's 75 million and there's no single voice, but there must be a lot of frustration with the way things are going. How might public opinion there move the next government one way or the other? 
Well, I, I think that you have a population which, as Nazila was saying earlier, they experienced one profoundly disillusioning revolution. So people in Iran, the word revolution doesn't have um, romantic or positive connotations in Iran the way it's, perhaps it does in the Arab world. And they've seen that this regime uh, is very willing and able to use overwhelming force to maintain order. And I think we're dealing with a, a, a population in Iran which I would describe as post-Islamist. You know, they're not interested in becoming martyrs and going onto the streets and killing and dying for the cause. So I think that they would like to see the system uh, uh, banned. They would like to see um, a, a nonviolent movement. But again, they're up against the regime, against the leader, Khamenei, who believes that if he starts to bend, the system could break. Nazila? Um, I want to agree with Karen, but what would also like to add that Iranian people have acted very unpredictably in the past. When they came out in 1997 in such great numbers and voted for the more reformist president, nobody was ex expecting it. And again, in 2009, before the election, nobody was expecting people to be steered into such outpouring of emotions. And then they came out in huge numbers to vote for, again, uh, the, the more reformist president, the only candidate who was more reasonable compared to Mr. Ahmadinejad before the elections. So it is a little bit hard to predict how they will react in future, but they have, there have been signs that every time they see an opportunity for change, if they can play a role, even if it's minimal, they do come out in great numbers. It's hard to say. For the time being, since 2009, since the very repressive uh, repression, they have sort of embraced pacifism. They're sitting back. They're waiting to see what happens. But you never know. Maybe in during the presidential election in 2013, they see the opportunity and uh, pour out on the streets again. Nazila Fati is a fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center, and Karim Sajapur is with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has a starring role in our latest slideshow of political cartoons from around the globe. That is at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, joining with the World Heart Federation to celebrate World Heart Day, September 29th, with a focus on women, children, and heart disease. Learn more at Medtronic.com. And by Half the Sky, turning oppression into opportunity for women worldwide. A two-night special starting Monday, October 1st at 9, 8 Central, on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Modern campaigning has turned into a science of sorts. Political strategists slice and dice the electorate into smaller and smaller groups, targeting messages to specific populations. The world's Jason Margolis tells us about one very specific group that the Romney campaign is targeting in a very specific way online. Barack Obama's website lists 20 groups that support the president. There are the ones you'd expect, African-Americans, Latinos, and women for Obama. From there, it gets a bit more specific, including the group's nurses, sportsmen, and Catholics for Obama. Mitt Romney's campaign website lists 17 communities that support the Republican presidential candidate. Many are the same as on President Obama's website, but there's also Romney voters for free enterprise, farmers and ranchers for Romney, and then Polish Americans for Romney. David King with Harvard's Kennedy School of Government explains that one. Polish Americans are 
micro-targeted right now because they're in the suburbs north of Chicago and certainly in the Milwaukee suburbs. Milwaukee is very much in play, so a little movement among Polish Americans there may matter. According to the census, 526,000 people in the key battleground state of Wisconsin report Polish ancestry. All but 5,000 of them were born in the United States. I called up the National Bakery in Milwaukee to try and speak with some Polish Americans. The National Bakery is a local institution famous for its ponchkis, jelly donuts with a Polish twist. The manager there passed along the phone to 76-year-old Marlene Vitas. I've been a customer here since before the people who own it owned it. I've been coming here daily for, well, not on Sunday, they're closed. Vitas was born in Wisconsin but grew up hearing Polish at home. I asked her about the group Polish Americans for Romney. Mitt Romney has a Polish uh, backing. I explained about the website, then asked Vitas how she feels having her community specially recognized by the Romney campaign. Would say good. They recognize African Americans, Latinos, and while Vitas um, appreciates Romney's effort, she's still voting for President Obama. Though she says two of her four children are Romney supporters, but that's not because of Polish Americans for Romney. Perhaps Romney's Polish American strategy is flying under the radar, at least at the National Bakery, because the outreach has little substance. So I'm going to say Romney. Oh, there you go. Polish Americans for Romney. I asked David King at Harvard to look at the site, Polish Americans for Romney. Are you kidding me? It doesn't even link to issues around Poland. The page does have a link to Romney's speech in Warsaw from this summer. Beyond this, however, there's little to show this is a concerted effort to reach Polish Americans. It would be much more effective if the Romney campaign used Polish Americans for Romney to link to testimonials from Polish Americans, maybe speaking in Polish, talking about the importance of uh, U.S. and Polish relationships. But uh, what they've put up now is a template that they could use for almost any affinity group in America. King said Polish Americans for Romney in its current form won't work. But he says the web page also isn't going to hurt Mitt Romney. He says it's just a wasted opportunity to connect with more voters. For the world... I'm Jason Margolis. Herbert Lom had no problem connecting with his audiences during his six-decade-long acting career. Lom died today in London at the age of 95. His most famous role was perhaps that of Inspector Dreyfus, the long-suffering boss of Peter Sellers' Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther movies. Here's Dreyfus talking to his psychiatrist about Clouseau in 1975's The Return of the Pink Panther. Describe your thoughts. Get them out in the open. You'll feel much better. All right. See, it's always the same. Clouseau is sitting there in a chair, just like you, with his back to me. And uh, and then suddenly my hands go round his throat and I begin to squeeze. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. I'm squeezing. And the more I squeeze, the freer I feel. I'm in ecstasy. <laughs> And then suddenly, suddenly my problem is solved. <laughs> Film critic David Thompson is in San Francisco. He joins us now. David Herbert Lom was best known as Inspector Clouseau's long-suffering boss, Inspector Dreyfus. So uh, let's start there. What did he bring to that role? Well, he brought a kind of gloomy solemnity that uh, knew, even though he was Clouseau's superior, 
he was going to be made a fool of all the time. He was the classic straight man stooge, and he played that very well indeed. And uh, there was a great rapport between them. Um, I don't think Mom liked Sellers very much. He didn't speak about him very well, but on screen, they really had the chemistry of that double act. I think that was uh, a lot of people had that impression of Peter Sellers. Um, yes. <laughs> Lom had a great quote that he played the role of Inspector Dreyfus for 20 years, <laughs> but only had uh, about 10 years of good scripts. Uh, why do you think he kept doing it? He was an actor. I mean, he had come out of Europe, and um, I think survival was a big issue in his life for decades. And he he never appeared in more successful box office films than those Pink Panther pictures. I'm sure he earned the most money he'd ever earned on those films. And by that time, when he was already 50-ish, maybe 60-ish even, I don't think he saw any choice. You know, that's what an actor is there for. I, of course, as a youngster, came to Herbert Lom through the uh, Pink Panther films, but he did a lot of movie roles in a lot of uh, big films. Here he is in a scene with uh, Kirk Douglas in the 1960 classic Spartacus. He plays uh, a pirate chief. And what if we assemble the ships and there is no longer a slave army to board them? I'll give you a chest of treasure now and the rest when we get to Bandusium. This one? Yes. <laughs> Done. Seven months from now, the ships will be assembled. Now, there he is as a pirate. Uh, Herbert Lom played a lot of villains, and you can you can hear that accent. It, it could be perfect for, uh, for villainy. He was, he was known for having very good English, and I think you can hear there what an interesting, subtle voice he had. Well, uh, again, on his accent, he used to say that um, he ended up playing a lot of the villains um, in part because to the English, all foreigners are sinister. Oh, absolutely. He was a superb leader of the Arab infidel mob in El Cid, opposed to Charlton Heston. Uh, and he must have played many nationalities. All bad guys. Uh, just about, yes. <laughs> uh, do you have any indication of how he was thought of in the acting community? Oh, he was he was one of the sort of stalwart professionals. This is a man who made... I would guess over a hundred films, many of them worthless, but um, <laughs> he would play any part well. He always rose to the level of the material. And I think that if you have that ability, the business learns to respect you and trust you and keep casting you. Film critic David Thompson, remembering the life of actor Herbert Lom. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Herbert Lom died today at his home in London. He was 95. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, mesmerizing high-definition photos of... Plankton? They look every bit as complex as the biggest animals on Earth. You can see their organs, their eyes, their jointed bodies and legs. Many of them also have these really vivid colors, blues and greens and pinks, and this kind of eerie, translucent shimmer to them. 
WERIs, the world is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by Half the Sky, turning oppression into opportunity for women worldwide. A two-night special starting Monday, October 1st at 9, 8 Central, on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. China is on the verge of a -a once-in-a-decade transition of leadership. Though Communist Party leaders won't say exactly when it will happen or who will step into the top spots on the Politburo Standing Committee. But one leading contender is the Communist Party chief of Guangdong. His name is Wang Yang, and he's cultivated an image as a political reformer. But not everyone in Guangdong sees it that way, as the world's Mary Kay Magstad reports. It's not easy building a reputation as a political reformer in China, though Wang Yang has certainly tried. He's Guangdong's Communist Party chief, and he took a novel approach to quelling unrest in the village of Wukan last year. He listened and negotiated, rather than cracking heads. And he has allowed some non-government organizations to become legal, as few are in China. One that has just become legal is the Guangzhou Social Service Center for the Disabled. I met its co-founder, Hong Tu, in a coffee shop. I can see that they try to do something to cooperate with the civil society, with the NGOs. But I think they need to do more, like try not to control too much, but cooperate better. I think our governments should try to believe that people do something for a better life. It's not against the government, but to do something better to improve the society. Party leaders have their doubts. So even in Guangdong, they've kept a short leash on NGOs dealing with labor rights. In a little neighborhood on the outskirts of Shenzhen, the head of the labor rights group Spring Breeze ticks off the problems his group has had. Zhang Jiru says they've been kicked out of multiple places they were renting because the police leaned on the landlords. They couldn't register as a non-government organization, only as a company. So Zhang isn't so sure that Guangdong Party Chief Wang Yang is a political reformer. He says labor rights groups had more room to operate under the last guy. When Wang Yang came in, he made it harder for us. Some journalists in Guangdong are of two minds, too. Guangdong's news media have long been known for being more feisty than those in most other places in China. And there was a brief time when Wang Yang said they could criticize the Guangdong government. That lasted about a month before the central government weighed in and put a stop to that. Guangdong editors have not infrequently been fired for overstepping the line. Yu Chen has worked as a reporter and editor for the newspaper Southern Metropolis. He says every year they have a new reason to tighten up on the media, and it just gets tighter and tighter. When it comes down to it, they just want to save face and make sure everything looks good. That's especially true in the lead-up to the party congress. Other Guangdong journalists say they've been ordered not to write anything that could hinder Wang Yang's prospects, like stories on social unrest, piracy and other social ills. But they are encouraged to report on Wang Yang's strike-hard-against-crime campaign, cracking down on smuggling and corruption. 
A self-made businessman I met on an evening stroll out in Shenzhen was skeptical. Mr. Ye, who's 38, supplies leather to shoe factories. He says, "Let me tell you. They say this is a strike against crime. Ayah! In China, the police and the gangsters are the same." Just down the street, a smuggler named He says he hopes the local government does crack down on the gangsters who demand a cut to let him bring powdered milk and other goods up from Hong Kong. He says people really distrust each other. It adds stress and adds cost to living in this society. If everyone could trust each other, we would all live a more relaxing life. Guangdong Party Chief Wang Yang has talked of wanting to improve the happiness quotient for Guangdong residents. It's hard to know how much of this has been talk and how much has been a genuine effort to make Guangdong a model to show what political reform can do. Liu Kaiming is the founder and executive director of the Institute for the Social Agenda in Shenzhen. It's a labor rights and civil society advocacy group that the local government tolerates but refuses to make legal. Liu doesn't believe a government-led Guangdong model of political reform really exists. He says Guangdong, with its international ports and proximity to Hong Kong, has long been more open and more driven by private initiative than the rest of China. So sure, he says, Wang Yang deserves some credit, but Guangdong's people deserve more. From Guangdong, we can see the future China, and according to my experience, the people have a chance. And he says, when society changes, the government has to change with it. But he's not holding his breath for that to happen soon. Journalist Yu Chen agrees. He says all kinds of rights come from sacrifice and struggle, generation after generation. People and technology will change this society, and in five or ten years, maybe we'll see the end of the Great Firewall. He pauses and adds. I once had a bet with a friend that I would outlive the Communist Party. I can see that day coming. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Shenzhen. A mighty oak tree once marked the spot we're looking for in today's Geo Quiz. Five thousand years ago, a dense forest of towering black oak trees covered this eastern region of England. Now it's mostly low-lying farmland and bogs. Recently, a farmer made a discovery there near Cambridgeshire. His plow hit a massive oak tree buried in the wet soil. Experts have now recovered the perfectly preserved 5,000-year-old timber. 44 feet of figured quarter-sawn English oak. I mean, I thought the tree was going to be good, but it was absolutely staggering. So, where was this ancient oak tree found? We'll get the answer in a few minutes and hear from the English carpenter who hopes to build a black oak table fit for a queen. South Korea has a problem with suicide. It's got the highest rate among countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It may have something to do with the intense pressure on Koreans to succeed at school and on the job. Government officials are trying to do something to address the issue. In Seoul, they recently targeted a bridge that's become a popular spot for suicide attempts. Reporter Jason Struther went to take a look. Looking over the guardrails of the Mapo Bridge, it's a 60-foot drop into the Han River. That's probably not high enough to die on impact, but that hasn't stopped many people from trying. 
Over the past five years, at least 100 South Koreans have jumped into the river. About half of those died from drowning. Of the 31 bridges across the Han, Mapo seems to be the top choice for jumpers. Tired of it being referred to as the Bridge of Death, the Seoul City government recently made some changes to the bridge. Now it's calling it the Bridge of Life. The government did not install high fences to deter jumpers. Its strategy is to appeal to a person's emotions. Park Young-ki of the Korea Suicide Prevention Group was contracted by the city to give Mapo Bridge a new look. Many people commit suicide because they have trouble communicating and feel isolated, he says. So the bridge will make people feel they are wanted and help them open up too. Now all along the guardrails are inspirational slogans that light up as you pass by. They say things like, how are you doing? Isn't it nice to be walking on a bridge? And did you eat anything yet? There are also pictures of babies on the rail, and at the center of the bridge is a bench with a brass statue of a stooped-over young man being consoled with a pinch on the left cheek by a grandfatherly-looking gentleman. If anything, it's a unique approach to suicide prevention in the country that is consistently ranked as having the highest suicide rate in the developed world. But not everyone is impressed by the Bridge of Life and its positive messages. I was just walking here talking to you and I haven't even noticed it here. Kim Hyun Chung came along with me to check out the new installations. She's a psychiatrist at the National Medical Center in Seoul. She says some of the bridge's new features could actually be counterproductive. She stops at the baby pictures. It might make someone more sad because they might have lost a child could be someone that they miss very much and they want to go with them. Kim says the makeover misses an opportunity. It doesn't provide any help if a depressed person decides to walk back off the bridge. Maybe they're trying to move your emotions a bit, but maybe they should give out more facts. Like, it's it can be prevented. There are people willing to listen to you. Uh, there are better ways to solve your problems. Uh, please contact such and such a number, or maybe that would have been a bit more helpful. She says suicide is still a taboo subject in South Korea. There's no public dialogue about it, Kim says, which leaves many people feeling it's an acceptable way out of their problems. Bridge of Life consultant Park Young-ki acknowledges the new features don't tackle all of the issues, but it's a start. Park says there is a need for suicide education, and his organization is working to put similar messages not just on bridges, but also in schools. Psychiatrist Kim Hyun Chung concedes that at least the government is trying to address Korea's suicide problem. But she says depressed people need more help than just positive messages from light-up guardrails. It just makes them more lonely, you know. This is We need to have interest in the people around us and say this to them, listen to their difficulties, share your difficulties. But nowadays people are so busy and caught up with their own problems that they really don't have time to listen to one another. Kim says maybe suicide attempts at the Mapo Bridge will go down now, but if someone is really determined to jump to their death, there are plenty of other bridges across the Han River. For The World, I'm Jason Struther in Seoul. Time to find out more about that giant oak tree we told you about in our GeoQuiz. The ancient tree was found buried in farmland in East England. It was at the edge of something called the Fens.
the Fens being the answer to our geo-quiz. Let's turn to Hamish Lowe, who's overseeing the recovery of the black oak from the Fens. How did you find the, the tree there? Well, the tree was first excavated in March of this year because the farmers, as they cultivate the fields, they hit them. And this one, I mean, I've been doing this for about 20 years. It was branchless for 44 feet. And in fact, it was so straight that I still don't know which was the canopy end or the root ball end, which is extraordinary over that length. And the only sort of intelligent conclusion that you can draw from that is that actually it's only part of a much, much larger tree. And the reason that it was so well preserved is because it was so vast and heavy, it fell and smashed everything in its path and fell into this sort of swampy silt, which then must have sort of returned and covered it over. So I think, you know, the, the, the very largest trees tend to be the best preserved. Hamish, let's back up just a moment. The fields now, the fens, this was thousands of years ago, once a forest of tall black oak trees, right? Oh, incredibly densely forested. And the reason that we want to retain the integrity of this tree and keep it in its uninterrupted length is because it gives an insight into the majesty and grandeur of these ancient high forests. I mean, they must have been absolutely breathtaking. Is, is there anything especially impressive about this particular oak tree other than the size that you've mentioned? Is there something amazing about the wood itself? There certainly is, yeah. It's extremely beautiful timber because it fades. It's jet black on the outer annular rings and it fades to a light brown in the middle. So if you can imagine these, because we've now planked this tree into sort of two and a quarter inch thick planks. If you can imagine these planks, 44 foot long, jet black on the outer annular rings, fading to a sort of gorgeous sort of chestnutty brown color towards the center of the tree. I mean, they are absolutely breathtaking. And what does uh, the wood smell like? Well, because the trees died standing in salt water, they have a unique smell, actually. It's unlike anything else, to be honest. They died standing in salt water. Yeah, as the rivers backed up and flooded the Fenland Basin. Huh. And, and what happens now w- with the boards? You'll dry yeah. them, it'll take a few months, then what? Yeah, then we're going to make a tabletop. We're going to, I mean, this a tabletop? Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, this, this tree has been an inspiration from the first moment I saw it. And the planks, you have to try and listen to what the planks are telling you what to do with them, really. I just want to keep an uninterrupted length and create a tabletop out of these beautiful, beautiful planks. I mean, this is the kind of table that you would, I don't know, present to the queen or something like that. Well, what, what, yes, what, I mean, what will this look like? Well, it, it'll, look, it'll look enormous. We're going to make it up out of about six planks, and we're going to join them in such a way to try and make use of this totally unique sort of fading element that you get with this sub-fossilized Fenland black oak, and you get with nothing else. So we'll start with black on the outer edges of the table, going to light brown, then to black again, then to light. So you'll get these beautiful bands of black on the outer annular, annular rings of each board. We're actually trying to develop techniques for joining these planks together, which have been dictated by the planks themselves, if that doesn't sound too daft. So by scribing them together and almost patching each joint, with immediately you see this tabletop, you'll think, my God, they're made up of those six planks and they were that long. I think it should be, well, I'm, I'm hoping that we can create an unprecedented masterpiece with these boards, really. The plan is to try and actually give it to the nation. Hopefully, it may provide a little bit of inspiration for the next sort of generation of craftsmen. Hamish Lowe is with the Fenland Black Oak Project. 
I can honestly say I've never heard anyone more enthusiastic about a tree. Well, if you're interested in wood, it's the Holy Grail. It doesn't get much better. Thanks for talking with us. You're welcome. It's a real it's pleasure nice talking to you. You can see the majesty and grandeur of that 5,000-year-old black oak at theworld.org. This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals make their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. There's no way around it. We report on an awful lot of bad news here on The World. But every now and then, something just jaw-droppingly fabulous comes across our desks, the kind of thing that makes you excited about the world again. Well, it happened this morning to our environment editor, Peter Thompson. He was trawling the BBC's website and came across a slideshow of images of marine zooplankton. We've got a link to it on theworld.org, and uh, Peter's here in the studio now. Um, They're colorful. They're interesting, but what grabbed you about these pictures? Well, it's the incredible beauty of these really tiny organisms. And also they're incredibly complex, and you can see that in these photographs. We're talking about things that in some cases are a millimeter long and smaller. And when you see them in these amazing high-res pictures, they look every bit as complex as the biggest animals on Earth. You can see their organs, their eyes, their jointed bodies and legs. Many of them also have these really vivid colors, these blues and greens and pinks, and this kind of eerie translucent shimmer to them. They're really just totally amazing. And uh, where did the images come from? Well, let me back up for a minute, if I may. I was in New York last winter, and I was walking around Lower Manhattan with my daughter, and I saw this very strange-looking sailboat tied up at a dock in Battery Park City. Its hull was all metal, and it was rounded at the top of the hull instead of angular, and it had almost no deck space. And instead of a delicate little name inscribed in the stern like most sailboats have, it had the name Tara etched out in big orange stripe on the bow. It was clearly a ship meant for some kind of marine research in very unforgiving conditions. And I took a picture and I made a mental note of it. And then, of course, I forgot all about it as I went off to try to find my daughter a hot chocolate because it was freezing out. Well, it turns out that this is where those images came from. Tara is a 120-foot French sailing ship that's been traveling around the world chronicling various facets of the marine environment and how that's changing. And its latest mission was a -a two-and-a-half-year, 70,000-mile journey to nearly every part of the global ocean researching plankton. And part of that project was to photograph what they found. Yeah, okay. Now, you're an environment guy. You're a science guy. Plankton? I mean, come on. What's the big deal? Well, they're cool, but they're more than that. I mean, they're these really tiny organisms that they mostly just float around in the water. There's zooplankton that are animals and phytoplankton that are plants. And they're all different kinds of creatures from crustaceans and mollusks to diatoms. And there are zillions of them in the ocean. And they're incredibly important to both the global food chain and the atmosphere. Most of the bigger organisms that eat things in the sea, including us, ultimately are eating plankton of various kinds that have come up the food chain. They are also, scientists say, that the phytoplankton are responsible for producing half of the oxygen in the atmosphere that keeps us alive. Um, So uh, Tara was out there doing what? Well, they set out to try to document just what's out there in terms of the numbers and kinds of plankton. And what they found was almost as amazing as the creatures themselves. They recorded a million and a half different species, which is more than we even knew existed beforehand. And of course, even in sailing 70,000 miles, they only covered a tiny fraction of the total volume of the sea. So you can imagine that there are likely millions more of these species that have yet to be documented. So 
basically plankton, they're more than pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah, but there are some really pretty pictures, and you can see them on our website, theworld.org. That's right. That's the world's <laughs> Peter Thompson. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Finally today, how about a little gagaku? That's a musical tradition that's been associated with Japan's imperial families for centuries, and it's rarely performed outside of Japan. So it was a rare treat when an orchestra dubbed the Musicians of the Imperial Household Agency performed in Edinburgh, Scotland. Reporter Maria Bacalopolo was there. When you listen to Japanese gagaku, your best bet is just to sit back and enjoy the hypnotic ride into history. This centuries-old music was born from a merging of cultures. Jiro Okuyama, head of the touring company, explains its origins. It has started as a combination of various factors. The first, there was an import of music from the Chinese continent and the Korean peninsula. And that mixed well with what had already been there in Japan as a traditional Japanese music. So actually it had various elements in a good mix in the first place. So it provided a good orchestral music to reach soil, as it were, for gagaku to grow for centuries. Gagaku is the oldest form of classical music in Japan. It was brought to the islands along with Buddhism and thrived in the imperial courts from the 700s. The musicians wear magnificently detailed costumes and sit inside an intricate stage set, which adds to Gagaku's splendor. The music holds a very specific purpose in the imperial household, says Shogo Anzai, the chief court musician of the ensemble. The principal role of gagaku is to accompany the rituals and actions of the emperor and the imperial family. In fact, we've always served the imperial family. I think that's the main reason it's lasted such a long time. Each orchestra, if you will, is comprised of 16 musicians. The instruments are ancient designs. The show, a bamboo mouth organ, provides the harmony. And the hichiriki, a double reed vertical flute, provides melody. There are dramatic punctuations to the music, introduced by two large taiko drums. The effect is complex and haunting. Jiro Okuyama says this music was never intended to be heard by the general public. It has been uh, with the uh, imperial family throughout its own history. Uh, Also, uh, the gagaku, they also served the needs of the successive uh, rulers of Japan. So basically, it was a music for the aristocrats and uh, high echelons uh, of the Japanese society. It was not uh, really a sort of music for the general public. The entire set was flown over from Tokyo for this one UK performance. The group also performed traditional Japanese dragon and phoenix dances, known as bugaku, All the performers, the dancers and musicians, have always been male. Shogo Anzai, 
the chief court musician, who has been with the group for 52 years, says there are no plans to change tradition and add women. But there are some changes. New men are allowed to join the group now. Traditionally, the musicians would come from particular families. But then they started to allow people who weren't from traditional musical families to become part of the orchestra. Now you just need to be good enough to be part of the ensemble. In 2009, UNESCO placed Gagaku on the intangible cultural heritage list, which protects traditions, not places, from disappearing. For The World, I'm Maria Bacalopolo in Edinburgh, Scotland. Check out the ancient sounds of Gagaku via Scotland. We have a video from the Edinburgh International Festival at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter, and we are back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.